Welcome to Shoot First, Ask Questions Later, where we research the response of our past and review their relevance for today. This is your host, Moshe Kurtz. Welcome to another episode of Shoot First, Ask Questions Later. Uh, today we have the schus, we have the true privilege to have Rabbi Yona Reese with us, who is going to be discussing the topic about going to non-Jewish courts and also Jewish courts adjudicating based on non-Jewish laws. And Rabbi Reese is an excellent choice for the topic. We're very grateful for you to be with us because we should get to know a little bit about Rabbi Reese and why this is his choice of topic. Rabbi Yonah Reese is the Av Bastin. He's the head of the rabbinical court of the Chicago Rabbinical Council and the Rosh Yeshiva at the Rabbi Isaac Elchanan Theological Seminary at Yeshiva University, where he serves as the Rabbi Elkatz Chair in Professional Rabbinics. He is also the Sagan Av Bastin of the Basin of America in New York. He previously served as the Max Marion Grill Dean of Reitz. Rabbi Reese received Yorah Yorah and Yadin Yadin Smicha from Reitz and is also a graduate of Yale Law School where he served as a senior editor of the Yale Law Journal. He has published many articles in Jewish law and on American law, including in Truman, the Wall Street Journal, and the New York Law Journal. Most recently, Rabbi Reese published the book Kanfe Yona, Mazel Tov, a Hebrew language compendium of essays and responsa about contemporary issues in Jewish law and Talmudic topics. The books received approbations from leading rabbinic authorities throughout the world, including the two current chief rabbis of Israel. So as I said, it's a huge schuss to have Rabbi Reese with us. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, we're going to be looking primarily at a fundamental tshuva of the Rashba, Chelik Vav Simon Reish Nun Dalid. And um, can you tell us a little bit about this tshuva, why you chose the tshuva, and what we're looking to get out of it? All right, well, first of all, thank you very much, Rabbi Kurtz. It's a pleasure to be on your uh, podcast, and uh, I am really honored uh, to have this opportunity. I chose this tshuva of the Rashba, of course, uh, by uh, Shlomo ben Aderet, who is a, a great uh, the Spanish rabbinic authority uh, from the Rishonim. He lived from, I believe, 1235 to 1310. And many of the halakos that we follow in Shulchan Aruch in life really come from the discourses of the Rashba and his interpretation of the Gemara and his chuvos in particular. And this chuva is one that really has had momentous import in terms of the understanding and the application of the principle that the Gemara uh, that there is a prohibition of adjudicating cases between two Jews in front of the secular courts. Now, this is derived by the Gemara and Gittin and Dafa Pechesam and Beis from the first Pasuk in Pashas Mishpatim. Mishpatim Tasim These are the ordinances that shall be placed in front of them. Who is the them that the Fnehem that the Pasuk is speaking about? So the Gemara explains Lifnehem, Akum. These are the Jewish law judges meaning that you should present all of your ordinances, all of the disputes regarding all monetary disputes that you have in front of the Jewish law judges, below the Pnei Arkos Shogayim, and not in front of the secular courts of the nations of the world. This is a prohibition to adjudicate cases in front of the secular courts. Now, the question becomes, does that prohibition only apply to bringing a case in front of the secular court? But what about applying secular law, even if you're going to adjudicate in case in front of the best. And this is a, a very hot 
contemporary topic because people enter into business transactions and the like, sometimes really wanting to rely upon what we call the customs of the marketplace, um, what the standards are of secular society. You enter into a business transaction and very often the expectations are that the business transaction will be conducted according to the norms of secular law. Um, if the parties have stipulated that in their contract, is that something that should be honored by the Besden, or is it something that the Besden should not honor? Because maybe that is on some level a violation of Lipneem in front of them. You should go in front of the Jewish law judges, meaning the Jewish legal system, below Lipneemarkos and not in front of a secular legal system. And is it not on some level submitting to a secular legal system when you instruct uh, the Besden to decide a case according to a secular law? This became a hot button issue in recent times when the Medina, Medina Israel, was founded uh, going back, of course, 75 years ago. And uh, there was a system of uh, courts that was put into place at the time that was based upon English law and Ottoman law and uh, other legal systems, but not Jewish law uh, per se, what we refer to nowadays as the Bagats. And uh, all of the judges, at least at the time, the judges were perfectly Jewish. But nonetheless, the code of law that they were called upon to apply was a code of law that was not premised upon Torah law principles per se. Some of you may recall that there was a movement known as the Mishpat Ivri movement um, that was headed by certain very fine scholars such as Menachem Elon, um, which stood for the proposition that the courts in Israel should certainly take into account Jewish law. They should be conversant in Jewish law. And Menachem Elon, who of course sat as a judge uh, in uh, the Israeli uh, court system, made sure that whenever he wrote a decision, he incorporated a section which would analyze the applicable Jewish law uh, that would be relevant to the subject at hand. But despite the fact that the Mishpat Ivri movement certainly referenced to a Jewish law, um, the cases were not, strictly speaking, adjudicated based on Jewish law. Menachem Elon was very good at figuring out ways of saying, well, according to Jewish law principles, we're supposed to defer to um, such concepts as Dina the law of the land is the law, and even the idea of that you follow the customs of the marketplace. So therefore, he said that based on an admixture of these principles, very often, uh, the outcome would be the same, even if, strictly speaking, according to Jewish law, the outcome would be different. And uh, there was much uh, discussion about whether uh, this uh, assumption and this uh, uh, approach of Menachem Elon and the Mishpat movement uh, was really a, a sound approach or not. The Chazonish famously uh, wrote that the, the court system that was set up in Eretz Yisrael was intrinsically defective. I'll just make short reference of this before we speak about the Rashba a little bit more. The Chazonish, in his commentary to Masechah Sanhedrin, Simon Tezvav, the Sifkat and Dalit, said that if you would set up a, a system of laws that was based upon Boros um, Nishbarim, uh, he said, uh, broken uh, wells, and you would leave the Mekor Mayim Chaim, you would leave the, the Torah system uh, of law, which is our uh, foundation and the waters that we uh, drink from, um, that, that even if Yaskimov, everybody would agree upon some sort of an alternative legal system, 
That would be considered to be a violation, a desecration of the Torah. And he said that this is an application of the second part of the principle, which the Gemara speaks about. You should place the laws in front of the judges and not in front of the secular courts. So he said, also, you have to place the, 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 your disputes in front of the Jewish law judges and not in front of uh, individuals who are unlearned lay people who do not know how to apply Jewish law properly. Now, the Ramban, his commentary, al Chumash, says that second part of the principle is different part from the first part. Namely, when it comes to, a, to adjudicating a dispute in front of unlearned laymen, so then you could say, well, says that this is not something we're supposed to do the chatrila, but if both parties agree that they're going to take some ignoramus to decide their dispute, that they would be allowed to do so. They can make a tanai, generally speaking. That'd be arbitration, right? Sure, you have a principle called tanai shibamomankayim. It would be arbitration because the person wouldn't, strictly speaking, uh, be a, a full-fledged dying, but the person would just be deciding the cases according to their sound judgment, but not necessarily utilizing a separate standalone uh, legal system. So that would be okay. However, um, if a person would decide, two people would decide, they're going to adjudicate their case in front of second. We're going to make a tanaya condition. For us, it's okay. We say, no, that's not okay. The Shulchan Aruch rules is it's null and void. That's what the Ramban says. Why is it null and void? It's null and void because it's considered to be making a condition with respect to something which is not just a Dabashib Mamon, something which is a monetary matter, but something which is a Dabashib Isser. It's a ritual prohibition to go in front of the secular courts. It's a desecration of God's name. The Ramam says, somebody is considered like your Meirim Yad, B'Torah's Moshe Rabbeinu. You're raising up your hand against the Torah Moshe Rabbeinu. So here, that's exactly what the Chazunish says. He says, it doesn't matter if you come in front of non-Jews. You come in front of trying to decide the case according to laws that they have made up. And he says, It's even worse. They have mm. switched and they have reviled the laws of the Torah for the an alternative legal system. Even if everybody would agree, he says that it's not considered to be a valid agreement. It says because you're raising your hand against the Torah Moshe, but you create an alternative legal system, even if all the judges would be Jewish, but they're bidden and duty-bound to apply secular law. So here, we no longer have the principle of the Ramban that just because they happen to be Jewish, you can accept them, because this is an example where you're actually accepting a different legal system upon yourself, and that is considered to be Meirim Yad B'Torah Moshe Rabbeinu, lifting up your hand against Torah Moshe Rabbeinu. So the question is, how far do we apply this objection of the Chazanish? Question, yes. Right. So so it sounds like the fundamental issue here is that it's it's almost like it's an insult. It's that we have the opportunity to keep the laws of the Torah and then we dafka replace it with something else. It sounds like the Lush of the Rambam is a it's a rebellion of sorts against God. Though um I know that we've mentioned the principle of Dina Demochusedina, which is a general idea that we're supposed to follow the laws of the land, and that's of course um very relevant to this topic. Um I think we'll speak to this as we as we explore the Rashba about how Dina de Mahusi Dina has been unfortunately coupled together with things like Vahafta Recha Kamocha and Kavad Habrios, which are all legitimate concepts in Halacha. 
but they are expanded beyond their limits many times. As 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 you mentioned, it applies to Dine Mannas, to monetary matters, but you can't apply Dina certainly to ritual matters, to marital matters. Um, but even within monetary matters, we'll see in the Rashba, I think, in the moment that it's not so pushy, it's not so simple that we could just use Dina de Dina as this elastic concept to basically um, use perforated pages on our chalik of Choshe Mishpat. That's 100% correct. And that's a perfect segue into uh, the tshuva of uh, the Rashba. So the question becomes, what if it's not a replacement of the entire Torah legal system, but parties in an individual case just happen to come in front of the Bezin and they stipulated in their contract that they want their business dealing to be conducted according to secular law. Is that legitimate or not? Is that also included in what the Chazun Ish was uh, fulminating about? Or is this something which is more legitimate? We, we do know that, as we mentioned earlier, parties are allowed to make conditions of the, the, the Mishnah in Baba Messiah, Dab Tzadi Dalit says that a Shoal Chinam can stipulate he'll have the obligations of a Shoal Chinam can stipulate the the Shomer can stipulate all the obligations of a Shomer Chinam, and that's considered to be perfectly fine. And we consider that to, to be binding based on the principle of Kol Tanai Shiba So what if instead of saying, oh, as a Shomer Chinam, I'll take upon myself to be obligated to Geneva Vabedu like a Shomer Sacher, the Shomer Chinam says, I'll take upon myself to be obligated according to whatever secular law because would obligate me uh, to uh, be uh, to, to be liable for. So is that considered to be beyond the pale? So the Rashba dealt with a case, this is Chalik Bavasim and Reishan and Dalit, where uh, there was a situation where uh, a, a man married off his daughter, we'll call him the, the, the father-in-law, marries off his daughter to a man and he provides a beautiful dowry, a nice nedunya, uh, for his daughter, and uh, then uh, the the daughter and the the son-in-law, they have a, a child. They have a, a they have a daughter. Uh, so very nice. Now he has a, a married daughter, and he has a granddaughter. But unfortunately, what happened was uh, was uh, that uh, the uh, the daughter died, and uh, then afterwards the granddaughter died. So now he comes back, and he says, "Okay, uh, there's no no longer a marriage, and there's no longer any." Uh, and any any offspring from the marriage. Uh, so the father-in-law said, I want my Nidunya back. I want the dowry to be returned to me. And the son-in-law said, nothing doing. I, I inherit uh, the wife. That's a Torah law. Either it's a, a, a Din Torah or a Din Deraban and Machlokis, uh, the nature of a Baal Yoish is Ishto, but certainly according to Jewish law, uh, husband, uh, his, his wife, he inherited his daughter as well. So therefore he said that he gets to keep uh, the dowry. And the father-in-law said, this is ridiculous because where we live in this particular country, we should follow the laws of the country. In this country, the law is uh, that uh, every single time that a the door that you have a short-term marriage and uh, the wife dies and there are no offspring from the marriage because the children die within a short period of time. So then the dowry that was provided by the father-in-law goes back to the father-in-law. We should follow the law of the land based on Dina de Mahusa Dina, and uh, this is considered to be uh, something that everybody would have in mind, that they're going to follow the law of the land. So they wanted to know, is this something which is not? And the Rashba really consists of three different parts, and here's where there's confusion in the Rashba, because 
Many people really only hone in on one part of the Rashba, or they mix together two different parts of the Rashba that say totally different things. It's important to understand what the Rashba says, because the Rashba seems to completely contradict himself. The Rashba starts off by saying, yeah, well, number one, we have a principle called Kayim. You make a condition, it's perfectly fine. If, in fact, this was the course of customary dealing in a place where Jews live, where it was always stipulated that the husband would give up his right to inherit his wife. So the Yerushalmi talks about such an idea of a husband giving up his Yerusha from his wife. This is, the Bible also talks about it. The Yerushalmi in particular talks about such a practice that this was done on a regular basis, especially for short-term marriages, because unlike most Yerushas, unlike most inheritances, when it comes to the inheritance that a husband has, from his wife, he actually can waive. He can be Masalik himself. He can waive that Yerusha. If he does it between the Arison, between the betrothal and the Nisuin, and the actual marriage, special laws, special laws, Nachla above the other, special laws discussed in the Gemara. So if that was the custom that everybody did it, so he said, 100%, then that would even, even if a person didn't make the stipulation, if that was a sort of the agreed upon custom of the area, we would follow it 100%. No, the father, father-in-law should win the case, according to the beginning of the Rashba. Then the Rashba switches gears. Oh, does he switch gears? <laughs> then the Rashba says, the second part of the tshuva, when we call Markham, Lino came, Neshu Mishpat Goyim, but to do that, because you want to imitate the laws of the non-Jews, and you're doing it, not because it's the customary way of dealing of the Jewish community, but because you don't respect your Torah law, and you want to imitate the non-Jewish law, nearly she'asur, that would be prohibited, lefishu mechakes goyim, because then you're doing it to imitate the non-Jews, the zehu, and this is included, says the Rashba, in the prohibition that we've been discussing, shesiva Torah, lefnei melo lefnei goyim, that you have to follow the laws of the Torah and not go in front of the second secular courts. Even if both parties would want to would want to do so, and the Rashba over here seems to indicate that even taking upon yourself a secular law, if it is a base of the desire to follow the ways of the non-Jews because you respect their legal system more than our own legal system. So then he says that, that would be a terrible, terrible thing. And he goes on to say, the Kolshikan and how the much more so, you're going to do away with the whole notion of inheritance of a father and and you're going to be mapil you're going to raise down, you're going to tear down the walls of the Torah, and you're going to destroy all of the roots and all of the branches of the Torah. That would not be a good thing. And that's the end of the second part of the Tshuva by the Rashba. In other words, the Rashba says, you do it as a matter of business custom or, or common uh, personal uh, family custom within the Jewish community, no problem. You're doing it because of the fact that you want to imitate the secular laws and you want to uproot our system and replace it with their system. So that's when you have a problem. Yes. If, if I may even uh, supplement, there was one line that really just jumped out to me along the same theme that he says later, 
He says, What do we need? Like all these, uh, all, the whole rabbinic canon that we have. You may as well just teach your kids. Why do we need to learn Gemara? Why do we need to learn Halacha? If this is what you're going to do, you're going to be Ogre yes. Kula. And everybody loves that line. And that's the most <laughs> memorable line of the Rashba when the Rashba gets around to saying, What do I need all of our bookcases of Svarim for if we're not going to pay any attention to them? But what people don't realize is the Rashba didn't say that line in connection with this part of the tshuva. The Rashba said that line in connection with the next part of the tshuva, ah. part three of the tshuva. Part three of the tshuva begins with the words, Anybody who thinks that you should follow the secular law because of the principle of Dina Damachusa, you follow the law of the land, that's a big mistake. And if you're going to take money from somebody on that basis, you're going to be considered to be a Gazlan. Why is that? Because the Rashi points out, the principle of the law of the land being the law is only applicable to a very small subset of governmental powers, such as the ability to levy tax and the ability to say whoever pays somebody else's property tax, if that person is failing to pay the property tax or the one who pays the tax is allowed to take over the land, those are things that have to do with very broad-based economic regulations that the king would really care about in, in terms of running a smooth and efficient and effective society. But when it comes to interpersonal interactions between two Jews, to a loan between two Jews, a partnership between two Jews, a neighborly dispute between two Jews, a Yerusha, an inheritance between two Jews, the king doesn't care about that. The king does not impose laws that relate to those types of interpersonal interactions. And therefore, that is completely irrelevant to the entire domain and principle of Dina de Malchusa. That is really the crux of what this chuva of the Rashba is all about. And in that context, the Rashba said, if you're going to follow Dina de Malchusa, when it comes to all of our monetary laws, you'll have nothing left of all of the Gemaras and all the Rishonim and all of the Akronim and all the Shailos, the chuva said that, that there would be no point because we would just follow the laws of our, the society around us and all of the Torah laws would become irrelevant. So the question, and then after all of that, the Rashba finally backtracks and the Rashba says, but where to what degree is Dina de Malchusa relevant? Yes, when it comes to taxes, when it comes to building bridges and stuff and eminent domain and things of that variety. And also he says, and so too, if you have a transaction between two Jews in which the two Jews accept upon themselves that they're going to uh, follow the Dine Amelech with respect to an individualized transaction. When it comes to a monetary manner, you can obligate yourself to give somebody something that you're not obligated to give. Just like a Shomachinam can say he's going to take upon himself the obligations of a Shoel, of a borrower, that'll be Chayabi for example. So, what in the world is he backtracking? He's so incredibly strong and incredibly um, assertive in his position that you cannot take upon yourself these laws because the secular courts. And then he says, it's all fine and dandy to make it tonight. So what in the world is going on over here? So I'd like to, we only have a few minutes left, just give you several different approaches within the Rashba that I think help us understand how the Rashba was really interpreted 
um, and applied by the classical later halakhic authorities. So one is the base Yosef. The base Yosef interprets the bring in Simen Chabab in a very limited context. The base Yosef brings the Rashba simply to stand for one very uh, short proposition, which is that you're not allowed to adjudicate cases in front of the secular courts. End of story. That's all that the, the Beis Yosef says. Says the Rashba says that this the Rashba was talking about a case where the father-in-law uh, sued the son-in-law in the non-Jewish courts, and he's pointed out that you cannot allow to do that. That's how he interprets it. The Rashba doesn't really seem on its face to be talking about a case where you went to secular court. That's what the Beis Yosef said. Number two, if you look at the Shulchan Aruch later on in Simon Shin Samachtes in Choshen Mishpah, so here's where we have the official codification of the laws of, of this particular position of the, of the Rashba. And it says over there um, that Lake of Mishum Dina Damachusa. So here we have the other application of the, how it's brought in the Shulchan Aruch, that in terms of the way in which the inheritance would go to the, the husband and would not go back to the father-in-law. So in that particular case, says the Shulchan Aruch, that we don't follow the Dina Demachusa. In other words, the way that the Shulchan Aruch is, is not in terms of the prohibition of imitating the non-Jews when two private people make a condition with each other, but simply that, let's say they didn't make the condition with each other, but one party says we have to follow this rule because it's Dina Damakusa. He says, no, when it comes to inheritance, we don't follow Dina Damakusa. This is not a sweeping economic regulation like bankruptcy law, rent control law, or something like that. So that's how it gets codified in Shulchan Aruch. Number three, let's say that it's actually a secular law that the parties want to take upon themselves. What about the concern of the Chazunish, that you're uprooting the Torah? So you could say the Rashma himself tells you what our lit litmus test is. The litmus test is, are you doing it in order to be mechakes agayim? Are you doing it because you don't trust the Torah legal system? Or are you doing it because this happens to be the minagasochim? This happens to be the custom of the marketplace, the custom of your business, the custom of your profession, the custom of your family, the custom of your community. But not that you uproot Torah law when it comes to other things. So it could be that that's really the distinction. And that's what a Bezin has to look at in any individual case where the Bezin has to decide whether to respect a particular choice of secular law in a particular case. Yes. Excellent. So thank you so much for, for those different approaches. And I just want to, in our last few minutes, dig into that final approach, which is it's about giving deference to the um, non-Jewish legal system and the non-Jewish ethos. So um, I'm not, you know, I'm not, an, you're the expert in Choshe Mishma, not me, but I'm familiar very, very generally with the Sharchetzi Zachar and these methods that we've come up with, because the case of the Rashba is that it starts with a case in which the father slash husband by Torah law should be inheriting his wife, inheriting his daughter, and they want that the grandfather slash father will get the Nidunia back. So the question is nowadays, it seems to be as societies become more egalitarian, we have also, I'm just saying this as an observer, we've also found a halachic workaround at, to enable that daughters can inherit from their parents as well, even though according to Torah law, it should just be the sons. And I know, I think um, when I learned to why, I think it was Rav Willig who said, ah, oh, you know, you still give a set of shahs to the son as a symbolic thing. But the question is, I think it's a, a question 
locally about this method of inheritance. And if possible, if um, Rabbi Reese, if you could speak to when is something a harama, when is something a, you know, a circumvention of the Torah, whether it's formally masa masha of Torah or even just ethically, uh, meta-halachically, when is something seen to be overriding or in conflict with Torah values and we're circumventing the Torah? And when is something like a prose bowl, which is perhaps like the most common example that gets cited, when is it a legitimate innovation that preserves the needs of the Torah? I think it's an excellent question. And I think it boils down to what is according to the Ruach HaTorah. What's according to the spirit of the Torah in terms of what you are accomplishing? Are you doing something that furthers the goals and purposes and principles of the Torah, or something that diminishes the purposes of the Torah. So I think in the Yerusha context, there was always a notion that we find in the Torah that even if somebody doesn't inherit, a person during their lifetime has the ability to give an individual gifts. You can give intravivus during lifetime gifts, and it's perfectely fine, as long as you're not, as the Gemara says, as long as you're not using the gifts, as a way to bypass the system of inheritance entirely. So if you leave over a certain amount of your estate that's going to be distributed according to strict inheritance laws, that's perfectly fine, even if a very strong amount of the estate is going to significant amount of the estate is going to be given to other individuals as long as it's done in the fashion of matana, of giving a gift. And that's how the Shtar Chatzizachar classically worked. A person would give a giant gift to, to their daughter. In fact, the gift would be so much, there'd be nothing left of the estate, but they would say to the sons that as long as uh, you are uh, comfortable giving uh, a half of the amount of uh, the estate uh, to the daughters, it's, they're not going to inherit exactly like the sons, they'll inherit half of what the sons inherit. So then this gift is going to be null and void. So the gift would be sort of an impetus for the sons' shares uh, to the daughters, but the sons would still get their rightful Torah shares. That wouldn't be uh, in any way uh, taken away by this process. So it would be the same idea nowadays. We don't do a shtar chazi zocha. We do what's known as the shtar zocha sholem, that the daughters get equal shares with the sons, but it's given in the same fashion in which what they get is basically through gifts. And then a state, usually the sparim or something like that, is distributed according to a strict Torah law. So how is that according to the Ruach HaTorah? Look at last week's parasha. Look at last week's parasha. He gave everything to Yitzchak. So the only one who inherits, inherited Abraham was Yitzchak. That was a divine decree. Abraham had other children. He had other children from Hagar, from the Pilachim. What did he do? What did he do with other people? He gave them matonos. He couldn't give them Yerusha and he gave them gifts. So that's pure, they're perfectly in, in accordance with the spirit of the Torah. So to enact something like this, we just have to determine, is it in accordance with the spirit of the Torah? And we have to make sure, as the Rashba said, not to uproot the idea of the Torah scheme of inheritance entirely. And that's the way in which modern day halachic wills and the shtar chatzizoch or shtar zoch uh, are, are implemented nowadays. Right. And I think um, it, perhaps you will agree with this. Um, who is able to determine what's in um, what's constant with the Ruach HaTorah, that would be the Gedolei HaPoskim, that would be the Rabbanim who are, you know, Shakua, they are involved in Torah, and they would have the best sense of 
what the Torah would want in a given situation. It's not for someone like me, you know, Moshe Kurtz, you know, Joe Pulpit Rabbi, or some guy out there to start saying what the Ruach HaTorah is. We have to rely on those who are actually Vagisa Bo who are actually studying the Torah to have the best sense of the of the Torah intuition. Would, would you agree with that? 100%. You want to make a principle, you have to go to Hillel. Only Hillel <laughs> can enact a principle. Not not to just uh, your stop, uh, you know, everyday um, rabbi, you know, of, of, of any community. It's something that requires the Gedole Ador to really look into these things and figure out the appropriate enactment, enactments. And that's why you need the guidance of Arashba Chazunish to figure out even how to regulate the, the, the principle of Lipnehem, Lodipnehem, the bottom line is you can't go to secular courts for anything in front of a Bezdin. There are occasions when it would be appropriate to apply secular law when it's in accordance with principles of Tanaish Mimamun or Minagasokrim or the limited arena of the broad based economic regulations that fall under the rubric of Adina the Malchus Adina, but to uproot the entire system of a Torah law in order to replace it with secular law, that is beyond the bounds that that would be something that would be prohibited. So, so very briefly, Halakha Maisa, um, in Eretz Yisrael, going to a court in Israel, what's the, what's the, uh, what's the issue there? If one goes to a court, which is presumably Jews are presiding over it, but they're using Mishpat Ivri or something that's not purely Halachic. And then also, what about in America, um, when someone goes to, let's say, the Basin of America and they do arbitration, are these decisions always being made based on the Torah? And if not, then is that okay? In Eretz, you know, it's a lot for like two minutes, but it's a lot for two minutes. But in Eretz Yisrael, you should the people should go to the Bati Din. There are, there are Bati Din, the Bati Din that have been established by the Rabbanuta that have authority when it comes to marriage and divorce and personal matters. Uh, that they are not given authority for some reason to adjudicate monetary disputes, wow. but people can through arbitration go to any other the other Bati Din that are around. There's some very fine Bati Din, Eretz Chemda, uh, Nesiva Samishba. Uh, there are very fine uh, Bati Din uh, for that parties can go to, and that really is halakhically uh, based on what the Chazunish wrote, uh, exactly what uh, people uh, should do. Here in America, Baruch Hashem, we have Bati Din here as well. You go to uh, the Bezin of America, so there's a principle that the Bezin of America has in its uh, rule book, the rules and procedures, uh, that if parties do decide to choose that uh, they want their dispute to be adjudicated according to the secular law, so then uh, the Bezin will apply that choice uh, to the fullest extent allowed under Jewish law. If it's something that's beyond the, the, the pale of Jewish law, because of the fact that, for example, it's a ribbis transaction, and ribbis is not a monetary matter, it's a ritual prohibition, so then the condition doesn't count. Uh, they, they, however, if the condition was in accordance with Minakasokim, they just wanted to follow uh, the standards of unity, it wasn't because they were looking to uproot the Torah, so then even according to the Chuba of the Rashba, the way that we Paskin and Shulchan Aruch, um, that would be perfectly fine to say that every single monetary law of the secular system is automatically applicable because of Dina de Malchusa, that's not something that the Bez in America would say, and that's something where we do, certainly Paskin Lahalacha, as the Rashba said, that, that we're not going to uproot all the Svarim of, of Rabin and but who came afterwards, um, but Torah law still remains extremely uh, relevant and uh, extremely uh, primary and paramount in all of our lives as it should be. And that's an excellent note to end on. Very articulate and very unequivocal. 
And uh, Rabbi Reese, thank you so much for your time and for lending your expertise to this uh, very fundamental chew of the Rashba and giving a deep dive into understanding what it's really saying so that people like me who just gloss over it when preparing a shear for Shalashudas, now I have a bit of a deeper understanding of this Rashba and what it means not just for the court system, but really what it means to be a, uh, a Jew living right now in the 21st century. So thank you so much, Rabbi Reese, and uh, wishing you continued slach and thank you for all that you do for Klal Yisrael. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Shoot First, Ask Questions Later. Please make sure to subscribe to get the latest updates. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate us and leave a review. Do you have a response to the response that you want to share on the show? Please send your letter to the editor to mitchellmkurtz at gmail.com. And God willing, we would love to consider your perspective to be shared on a future episode. This is Moshe Kurtz, and I look forward to reviewing more responses with you next time on Shoot First, Ask Questions Later.